that day when we came back and they normally do a celebration lunch in Ferrari after a race win uh, was the first day I felt truly like I was in F1 and on that day I truly felt like I belonged. Welcome everybody to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. There are so many different elements that contribute to success in Formula One. Car and driver are of course fundamental, but beyond that, it's about maximizing every opportunity. And this week, we're going to talk strategy. My guest is Alfa Romeo's head of race strategy, Ruth Buscombe. Ruth is brilliant at what she does, and she's also very articulate. She can explain this black art in language that we can understand. And aside from her brilliance on the pit wall, she's also a leading light in Formula One's push for greater diversity. Ruth's worked for three teams in her Formula One career, and she's made some inspired strategy calls. For starters, think Malaysia 2015, Sebastian Vettel's first win for Ferrari, when the Scuderia outwitted the mighty Mercedes. Ruth and her team of engineers executed that race perfectly and reaped the rewards. I learned a lot during this conversation and really enjoyed it. I hope you do as well. Ruth, it is great to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. Now, strategy. Is it a black art? No, it's definitely a science. Um, so strategy is just facilitating the best possible decision making um, and making those decisions in a timely manner, uh, which normally when you're on TV is uh, before the car gets past the pit lane. So look, how much planning goes into each race. It doesn't all start on Saturday night, does it? No, not at all. So uh, we used to um, select tyres. So the last couple of seasons have been a little bit different because of COVID. But um, normally strategy can start up to 13 weeks before a race where you're selecting the tyres and then you have to take into consideration uh, where you're going, what the weather might be like, what the extremes of the weather might be like, what performance of your car might be like. Sometimes we have new tyres, we're selecting them around Christmas Day for the season opener that happens in March. So it really does start quite a while before the first race. Do you have any influence with Pirelli about what tyres they take to each race? Do you, do you discuss that with Pirelli? Not actively. There is the Pirelli working group. that So teams are consistently are giving feedback, whether that's through telemetry data and technical feedback from um, the Pirelli tests that are ongoing throughout the season. Um, we will also give feedback after events. So typically when you go to a new track, for example, and the actual loads exceptionally around, um, let's say, high banking circuits like we just had in, in Zanville aren't theoretically known at the point they have to specify them, you'll often end up with a slightly more conservative tyre allocation because they want to make sure that we've got tyres that can actually put on a show and then maybe the next year we go to the track they go well actually we saw from the feedback from the teams that the, we could get away with going one step softer and bring a more aggressive compound that's safe to run on and will give a, a better show so yes we do but not explicitly I can't call them up and say hey can I have a C5 for next race <laughs> So how much more information do you have at your disposal now than 10 years ago for example when you started in Formula 1? 
A lot more. So we get a lot more um, data live. Uh, the moment we're getting, we get tire data through in terms of what the tire compounds our competitors are running, even during winter testing. So we used to have to manually spot tires up to around uh, three years ago. Um, we get a lot more video content now. So just like you, the fans at home get to see onboards. We also get to see onboards, and that helps us in terms of understanding what we should do more with the driving. Also for strategy, it's very useful to see where a beached car is if it's still got all its wheels attached on as to whether or not it's more likely to be a, a safety car or a red flag or if something's moving or keeping going and I think also the software that we're using is, is a lot more powerful than it was 10 years ago it's kind of as wonderful world of engineering is it's a kind of constant voyage into everything consistently improving so we have more plugins we have better ways of looking at the data we have better simulations it used to be all Monte Carlo simulations now we're moving more into machine learning and, and whole new realms of being able to simulate the races and also uh, more powerful computing as well so we used to have systems so some formula one teams 15 20 years ago used to use everybody's um, machines overnight so when they left the design office they'd be running the strategy simulations overnight on their desktops and now uh, you can probably do it on a cloud in about five seconds so strategy is consistently evolving but the a problem is so is everybody else you're trying to beat so it'd be great if it could just be you in uh, 2021 trying to beat somebody in uh, 2011 or 2000 but um, just like with aero development or any other part of the car, you can't unlearn um, what you've already learned. And so you see strategies evolve throughout the time, what was once special and unique um, and something that was a race winning strategy then becomes part of everybody's playbook. And so you have to consistently develop ideas, combine ideas, try to understand how you can consistently try and get one up on the other nine uh, teams. Has it got a whole load of more complex as a result of having so much more information at your disposal? I don't know if the word's complex. I think it's just you're, you're consistently racing or competing in any sport at the current level that you're at. So everybody from the history of time is already always competing at the most technologically advanced point at which they're there. You never really would be able to compare, just like you can't compare drivers. I don't think you could necessarily compare the strategies of 2021 with uh, Ross Braun in 1998. Um, probably Ross would still wipe the floor with all of us, but, you know, we, we don't have that for fact, so we don't know. <laughs> but do you get it right more often than not now compared to when there was less tools at your disposal? Well, you see, I would say it depends what your definition of right is, because if you ask most strategists, the definition of right is winning. And unfortunately, there's still the same number of cars in front of the same number of competitors that have been beaten. So I think actually probably not. And it's it's just about getting your car in front of your competitor. Uh, and there's the same number of that times happens now than it did 20 years ago. So that's an interesting point, right? So, so coming into a race... Are you thinking about what do I need to do to win this Grand Prix or are you thinking what do I need to do to beat my nearest competitors? It depends what your mandate is from your team. So as a as a strategist, it's you know, in its purest form, it is strategy and it is trying to 
deploy the team game plan. Now that can be different depending on where you are in terms of your position in the championship, where you are in terms of the point of the season that you're at and where your car is in terms of competitiveness. And it's not our job as strategists to decide what the team's game plan is. We are the people that are out there to go and deliver that and to come up with the most exotic menu of choices to be able to turn around to our team principals and say, okay, so you want to maximize your chances of getting points today. This is the way that I think we should go about doing that. Sometimes it might be helping one driver. For example, if you've only got one driver left in contention for the world championship, it might be a case of optimizing not to gain for one car, but to stop another team. One of the great things about strategy is there isn't really one way of quote unquote winning, although obviously winning races would be great. The reason why we all stay for years and years, just like everybody else in Formula One, is that there's a lot of uh, satisfaction in, in doing a great job, regardless of what the finishing position is. Ruth, tell me more about this exotic menu. How many different scenarios do you plan for in a race? If there is a safety car on lap three, do you know before the race exactly what you're going to do at that point? Or are you thinking on your feet on the pit wall? So the best answer to this is both yes and no. As part of your job in strategy, it's to say, what do I do if everything is basically similar to the way it is at the start of the race? So if I've made a, let's say, average start, it's not suddenly started to rain. Um, the weather is about the same conditions that I was expecting and, and nothing's gone dramatically wrong or right in the first two laps of the race. Then chances are you're going to be very close to your pre-race plan, which will have already been discussed and decided. So you go, OK, so from what we already knew going into the race, our expected pace, our position, tyre performance. On average, it's better for us to stay out or pit. Now, if something, let's say, very dramatically different has happened, so for example, if uh, two championship competitors have collided and taken each other out, that might actually fundamentally change the shape of the race for us because it might be that and now we're no longer going to be lapped and actually that suddenly throws all of our scenarios into a different situation and from a scenario that we couldn't gain advantage of because maybe we'd hit blue flags and lose 12 seconds of race time doesn't exist anymore because those two cars that were the problem in the plan pre-race have suddenly gone might be that you yourself have got damage in a, in a lap one safety car. So if you're the cause of the safety car, you can't tend to gain from it as well. So you really have to combine preparation with reaction. And that's where the best strategies come from, is preparing for a series of decision making and then descending your way through the decision making process. So you're not calculating things live, you're observing and reacting using all the preparation you did the night before. So let's talk about Portugal last year. Kimi makes that amazing start. I think he Only car six. on the soft, just remember that. <laughs> yeah. Were you there sort of ripping up bits of paper on the pit wall going, hang on a minute, we're doing plan A, B, C, D? Or even when it's going really well like that, do you know what you're going to do? Well, yeah, because that was the only reason we started on the soft. <laughs> so, so you were kind of expecting it, were you? I think the exact amount of success was not in my original simulations but um, I think you know when you start in a position like that around a track there was a new news track or relatively new in terms of to, to the people of Formula One in those cars every strategist's wildest dream because especially if you are not starting from the front in the quickest car all of these unknowns are opportunities so the fact that people did not 
know what exactly the tyres were going to perform like and and that adds a level of risk versus reward so if you go to a casino and normally maybe as a as a strategist you're betting the equivalent of 10 chips off the start line you go to a new track and that could be slightly more and then you look at the changeable weather on the grid and then there's been certain times where a little bit of rain can maybe if you get kind of a perfect storm of I say effects that actually being on a softer compound on a particular track and if it's a tiny little bit wet and um, gives you suddenly a huge advantage and whilst it's not necessarily a sensible decision to bet on a gamble like that if you are in pole with the fastest car and you can 99 times out of 100 win the race by doing a safer strategy if you're further back and it's a hard overtake track and you might be able to capitalize on a high risk high reward scenario it might be a better trade-off so that's the kind of thing that we would try and look through and we try to understand okay so today We've got this safe strategy, we've got this less say less safe strategy, but will give us a higher reward because the number one mantra of strategy is if you start behind the slower car and do the same thing, you finish behind. <laughs> so like you, you end up being stuck and, and not managing to get to the end. So it, it's about kind of coming up with these options. And then if everyone's on board and if, if they want to gamble, there's times when, you know, it's it's not worth it and you can see things that are like a high risk, but are not necessarily a great return for that that risk factor. I mean, we went to Monza, which was the second sprint qualifying. And the difference between the two sprint qualifyings in, in doing the start on soft gamble theoretically was massively different. So we, again, started a car on soft in Silverstone and, and, and like Alpine, we gained by doing so. But there's several characteristics that made what looked like the same uh, characteristic uh, similar but it isn't because Silverstone is a much more difficult overtake we had the C3 in Silverstone we had the C4 in Monza in terms of the way that the whole the run down to turn one the actual gain you can get off the start line by taking a higher grip tire is different so it's about trying to do our best job to calculate what's the potential upside and also what's the potential downside uh, if you hit a cliff in Silverstone you hit a kind of gradual one a bit like the way that um Alonso hit and he was only overtaken by uh, three cars and finished P7 which is obviously a massive gain from the start position now in Monza the way you get overtaken is a bit more dramatic because as soon as you start breaking traction you then kind of get yourself into like a doom spiral I think is the non-technical term for it but um, yeah I call it a doom spiral because I'm not a race engineer and then you start spinning more and then you're breaking traction more and you will just plunge through cars so it's our job to kind of put all these factors together and to say right we can gain so-and-so positions but there's a chance if it goes badly we're going to lose everything and we're going to be at the back and then actually no this is worthwhile because uh, we think there's quite a high chance of it going well and then we can be in p4 and maybe there's a small chance it will go badly and then it's it's you know it's your team principal's job to decide if we want to go gambling I was going to say, who makes that final call? Is it the team principal or is it you as the chief strategist? It's what you say goes. No, because it's not, it's not our jobs pre-race to make decisions about how much of somebody else's money you want to bet. It's a bit like being in, uh, if you manage somebody else's investment portfolio, ultimately the stocks that you choose to pick are the banker's decision. But the approach that you say, right, you talk to the person that's portfolio is, you say, okay, so how do you want me to manage your portfolio? Do you want me to go for this high risk, high reward, but then there's a chance I'm going to lose all your money? Or would you prefer me to approach, like when I go off to the stock market uh, in a more conservative way, um, and I can pretty much guarantee you a two to 5% return on your investment over the next six months? 
And then it's, you know, the person that owns the portfolio's job to say, okay, no, I want you to manage it like that. And then when it comes down to the individual decisions, that's then up to the strategist. But it's very important to not play God as being a strategist and to constantly make sure that you're communicating with every member of the team, especially your team principal and especially your bosses to understand what's the objective today. Do you have time during the race to have those conversations though? No, and going back to our stock market analogy, that's why you have a conversation beforehand. And so when you actually get down to actually doing the the kind of, you know, micro decisions, you know what you're going towards, you know, you know what you're trying to to achieve and you know the amount of risk versus reward that you've been given the mandate to go and achieve. And Ruth, are you naturally quite a risk taker? Are you are you quite aggressive on, on your strategy decisions? Is that where you lean naturally? People say I am, I think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think most strategists would like to see themselves in that way because I think it's it's the way that you gain positions is by doing something that somebody else doesn't. I think it's like asking a driver, would you like to be world champion? Do you think you're the best at overtaking? They're all going to say Yes. So I think most strategists would love to be the ones that are doing the aggressive moves. And it's always easier to be on the offense than the defense. Defensive strategy, when you've you've got a position in the championship and you just need to hold it and all you can do is lose, is a lot less fun than kind of giving it hell and being the kind of classic underdog uh, in a race. Now, Ruth, you mentioned drivers. Do you tailor strategies to particular drivers or in your calculations are all drivers deemed equal? You have to tailor them to the drivers because that's one of the beautiful, wonderful things about our sport and the thing that makes it uh, a lot more interesting than I think uh, many other kind of pure engineering equations is that you've got a human being in the car and there's, there's so much to that, whether that's making sure that you can communicate in a way that works best with a driver. So the way that you speak, how long you speak for, how much detail you give. If you're talking to Charles Leclerc in his first year or Kimi Raikkonen after 20, you're going to be speaking to them differently because they want to know a different amount of information and they have a different level of experience. And then if you are driving with a driver that's got a particular aptitude for certain, let's say, characteristics of racing. So some drivers that I've worked with have been spectacular at just absorbing information and just keeping a million plans in their heads. Vettel is this chap. So you can tell him 17 things and he'll remember all of them, and which is a strategist's dream. So you would obviously want to communicate to somebody like that differently than, than the majority of other drivers that would like to just get on with the driving and don't have the capacity to, to remember absolutely everything. That is fascinating. So Sebastian just gets it. Yeah, I think he would, he'd probably be a very good engineer. Don't, don't want to suggest that too much because it take my job. Um. <laughs> what about the other drivers you've worked with? So you mentioned Kimi. All that experience, how much info does he need? I think generally the drivers with more experience, they're kind of comfortable having more information given to them throughout the race. Maybe, for example, they don't need it repeated as much or they don't want it repeated as much. You know, for for me myself as an engineer, I like to, to go over everything many times because I just find that I assimilate information better by doing that. So I like to have stuff committed to memory and not have the information given to me live. And I think it's very similar that other with different characters, the way that different people like to approach a task. 
task is different. And that's one of the great things about drivers is not only do they communicate differently, but they've all got different strengths and weaknesses. You know, you've got drivers that are very good at defending positions. You've got drivers that are exceptional at overtaking at the end. You've got drivers that are brilliant at looking after their like front left tire Perez. You've got drivers that are that are very good in, in wet or changeable conditions and that will generally find lines that other drivers won't necessarily find. So you'll be wanting to look at their onboards, Max. So well, Ruth, you, this is really interesting. Your knowledge of the other drivers, is that part of your job, knowing the strengths and weaknesses of the other drivers and what you can then take advantage of? Oh, absolutely. And then you end up kind of driving against them for, you know, certainly if you do a whole season racing against uh, particular drivers, you really do understand what you can do to put them under pressure, potentially to make them make mistakes or not. Uh, (laughs) And certainly, yeah, for example, like racing against particular drivers, you start to understand not just driving that may be a thing, but how do they take blue flags? What are they like at the pit entry and exit? Hamilton, for example, you know, as well as being seven-time world champion, there's nobody that can do a pit entry like him for the last 15 years. And then you've got other drivers that you think would be amazing and they can't take a blue flag for love nor money. And so maybe they aren't used to racing round in blue flags. But then when you come to the day that you're racing against them, actually understanding, okay, so this guy's quicker than me. But if I take uh, this strategy and I extend then and if he tries to undercut me uh, and I push him into doing that strategy I know he's going to lose on average three tenths more than me per blue flag so because this is a short track and you know he's going to take seven of them that might just be enough that means that I can overcut him for example whereas I wouldn't dare do that with someone like Marcus Ericsson who's absolutely amazing at taking them so it's it's things like that that you 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 really want to you know Art of war, know your enemy. Um, although they are all and nice guys. Talking <laughs> of the enemy, Ruth, talking of the enemy, do you try and get to know your rival strategists, James Vowles at Mercedes, Hannah Schmitz at Red Bull? Do you know them and, and try and understand how they approach the job? Yeah, they're all they're all really nice people, which is... Uh, are they mates? Are you, are you, <laughs> yes, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, no, I think we, we've got a kind of... I guess it's a little bit like, you know, in most things, whether it's media or, or being a team principal or a driver or a strategist, kind of you'll know each other's worlds better than, than anybody else. And certainly, you know, if you've had a very good day or a very bad day, maybe they're the only ones else in the world that actually truly understand that. I mean, Randy, who's a great guy, one of my good friends last week, tweeted something beautiful after his uh, race win about the fact that he was contacted by every single team in the paddock. And that's Randy at McLaren. Randy C. McLaren. And that's what makes a great sport. I was raised to, you know, shake the opposition's hand and say good game when when they've done a better job than you and when you've been outraised. And I think that's the element of sport and that's what it should be. I mean, now it'd be a fist pump or an air pump, but (laughs) (laughs) same premise applies. Can we talk about some of the strategies that you're particularly proud of? First one I want to ask you about is Malaysia 2015. Sebastian Vettel's first win for Ferrari. Sebastian Vettel swerving, weaving, dancing to the chequered flag. He wins as a Ferrari driver for the first time in Formula One. Can you just talk us through how that came about and what it meant to you after the race? 
so this um, was a kind of a transition of, of heads of strategy at Ferrari. So we'd, we'd lost one head of strategy and then there was a new head of strategy that was arriving for race three. So it was a, a kind of a transitional period where all the kind of B team were effectively left holding the strategy baby for a couple of races until the, the new head of strategy was going there. So there was a lot of hunger. And Ruth, how long had you been in Formula One at this point? So this was my fourth season in, in Formula One. I'd started at the 2012 season, but I was still factory based. So I was working in the factory and, and there was a just a brilliant group of engineers that were working in the, in Marinello in the factory at that point. And it was a, a brief moment where actually there was a lot more responsibility that fell on, on people that had a lot of passion, were very smart and dedicated and, and maybe necessarily didn't quite get that opportunity to shine. And I think that's what made that day very special was that we were able to work together to come up with a strategy, even after some pretty intense quizzing by Aravabeni, who's still the scariest man I've ever, ever had say, a conversation with. I'm with you on that. <laughs> it's like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, it's fine. And I remember turning around to the guys in the room and being like, don't worry, guys, there's never been like an early safety car in Malaysia, but we just need to protect we should need to be confident okay we've done the work we know the numbers there's not going to be a safety car anyway we've got to hold face guys and then um even Seb questioned it he was like are you sure and I was like yes I am like deep voice I'm very sure and we were sure with the numbers but you know it's still intimidating to be questioned and then of course the safety car came out and I was kind of immediately my first thought was oh god like I've, I've like manifested this this safety car into being by saying there's not going to be a safety car we're really confident in our numbers we definitely know what we need to do then we did it and uh, and we stayed out and we did a two-stop and we were right and it was a, was a two-stop. And um, we, on that day, beat the mighty Mercedes, which was a huge feat. And, and we knew from that day it would not be a winless season, which in, in Marinello is a big, important thing. And I think that day when we came back, and they normally do a celebration lunch in Ferrari after a race win, uh, was the first day I felt truly like I was in F1, despite having been in there for four years, because... Being a British woman in, in Ferrari, maybe you don't always feel 100% like you really belong there. And on that day, I truly felt like I belonged. And what did the guys in the team say to you after the race? Not sure you can say this in the podcast, but there's a lot of, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of congratulatory oh, terms. No, and it, and it wasn't great. just me. It was, a, it was like it was all of us. Um, and yeah. I think that's what made it such a special day was that it was kind of putting the numbers and then seeing them manifest in real life and... Um, still my only race win um, but I think that's what really you know you you do all of these things and you spend all these nights working on numbers but then when it comes into something real and you see it actually happen it, it's really special and you had the courage of your convictions didn't you that day yeah or just stubbornness I, was, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I think we all did yeah. did, did Maurizio Rivabene give you a well done no, but a year later, he gave me access to the Bahrain Lounge as, as a thank you. <laughs> now look, you've hit on something there because I did want to ask you about life at Ferrari. What was it like? You say, as a British woman, not always easy. What is life at Ferrari like for anyone who's not Italian? I think it really depends on when you go and who you work with. So, I mean, a lot of the people that I work with there are not there anymore. So I wouldn't 
like be able to kind of comment on the current, let's say the current like uh, environment and where I was. Obviously, when I was there, it was kind of a different era. We had the president of Montezemolo. So I think it's moving in the in the right direction. I'd love to see more women in prominent roles in not just Ferrari, in, in all Formula One teams. Definitely want to talk about that. But just the, the whole Ferrari thing, because did you get caught up in the magic of that place? Did you appreciate I mean, it was your first sort of big job in Formula One. It was my one. first ever job. Yeah, okay. Right. But, so, I mean, that's the story in itself, surely. How you end up at Ferrari is your first job. But what is it like? Is it magical down there? For me, yes, it was. With the, and like, the history of the place. Yeah, I think it's, it's... There was an aura, certainly, that it was impossible to not be seduced by in terms of just... You felt like you were part of something bigger than yourself. I was a few months in, so I joined in June and, and there was the, the championship battle in, in 2012. And going as a junior 22-year-old to go into work on a Sunday morning for the Brazil race where we had a chance of winning the championship with Alonso and walking in to the factory, we're, like not even in, we're not in Brazil, we're in the factory. There were people clapping us going into work. Before the race. Before the, yeah, they were going to the end. But then before no, the not race. After it. Yeah, no, yeah. Really before just, the race. And like, you know, you, you're just so like amazed about being part of something like this. And, you know, if you were wearing the, the Ferrari lanyard after a race win it, back in, the, you know, you go home to Modena, which is where a lot of people lived. And like people would come out and say thank you to you. And, you know, on the on the other side, when you do badly, someone spat at my like suitcase. So there is there is a lot of passion there both ways. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not all uh, being cheered. <laughs> well, look, before we, we move on to... Other things you've achieved in your Formula One career. How did you end up getting that first job at Ferrari of all places? So as a very single-minded child, I just wanted to work in Formula One. Thankfully, I had the internet, so I did some incredibly cool research on various technical directors of the Ruth, day. Where did that passion come from for, for F1? Um, from my dad. So my dad loves watching Formula One. He was a McLaren fan. So when I did get a job in Ferrari, he couldn't really look at me for a while. But we're <laughs> over that now. So that's fine. But yes. Yeah, so but dad's not involved in racing, is he? He's a doctor. No, he's a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, just, just a, you know. Just as a fan. As and a sort fan. of did you go to the British Grand Prix as fans? Yes, we did. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so you've done all that. So yeah, I did that. And I was finally able to get him into the race as well, which was good. I, I don't think I've necessarily offset the ticket price he spent on me throughout the years. But no, that was a, I told him I was going to do him that for him when I was a, a kid. So it was nice to finally fulfill that promise. So yes, yeah, so I, I wanted to be an engineer basically since I worked out that like the people on the on the timing stands that were involved in sports always loved sports more than watching than the doing. We're doing maths. And I was like, that is what I want to do. I love maths. It's just the coolest thing ever. Maths and competition. I do mathletes. That seems way better than mathletes. Um, and so set my mind on doing Formula One, research where all the technical directors went to university and people like James Allison and Paddy Lowe went to Cambridge to do engineering and studied aerospace and aerothermal engineering. So that's what I did. And then what, also... Why James and Paddy in particular? The, the two that came up first on the internet. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. A for Alice. Okay, yeah. No, I think but it was, James is a well. Both of them, both Paddy and James, are hugely hugely respected. No, it was. Yeah. Uh, it was. Did you make any contact with them back then? No, I didn't. And like, uh, I, I was lucky enough to work with James Allison in Ferrari, and I sat next to Paddy on a plane ride back from a race once, which was quite weird because at this point I'd been in Formula One for like six years, and like 
I don't really like fangirl over anyone apart from when I met Rory Byrne and then when I sat next to Paddy for the first time and I kind of saw I was texting my dad I was like you will not believe who I'm sat next to <laughs> and everyone was like but he just works in Formula One why is it that big a deal because he was your inspiration by the sounds of it yeah and so like that was that was pretty cool and I was like oh I kind of went to university because you went and he was like oh cool I'm gonna get some champagne now probably thought I was this weird kid that was sat next to him on the plane um but yeah lovely chap but yeah it was um it was basically just me trying to work out what's the thing I should be doing that's going to get me in the right place and and there wasn't the kind of access that you can have nowadays we didn't have dare to be different girls on track program there, there was no I didn't know anybody in motorsport I didn't even know anyone that was you know like kind of working in motorsport that I could even LinkedIn because that really wasn't a thing when I was a, a kid so like that was kind of my base way of trying to work out okay how do I I know where I am I know where I want to be how do I get there Cambridge also ran these brilliant master's collaboration projects you know, for the master's thesis with a couple of Formula One teams as well as the FIA. And I did mine by Tony Purnell, who was... High research. Yes, exactly. He used to be a team principal at Jaguar and mm. then Red Bull before mm. Christian took over. And um, we did it on... Um, so it was actually the original DRS zones. So it was... Um, 2010, 2011, um, looking at setting the DRS zones because initially that you could use them freely in qualifying. And this basically meant that all the teams were effectively setting up the cars to maximize it in qualifying. And then the DRS wasn't really doing much in the race because of the efficiencies you then created. So it was initially an aero project, which was run with, in conjunction with the FAA and, and supervised by um, Charlie, who's Whiting, who was the first person I ever knew in Formula One. And then it was based on where do you set the zones? There were certain restrictions about where the zones could be and then simulating what effect that would have on a race. Did that involve you coming to races? Um, I only went to one as a result of it. I don't think I managed to wangle any more than that. I would have liked to, but it was mostly simulation based. Um, and although it was originally an aero project, it actually evolved a lot more into running with an, it was like a team's old uh, strategy simulator. And that was where the strategy bug hit me because it was about kind of actually simulating races. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And then since that point, I just wanted to do race strategy, but obviously it's a very difficult, very niche and small area to get into. But through that project, I was obviously working with Formula One teams as a result of it and was offered several interviews, including one by Ferrari and was hired by a wonderful chap named Giacomo Tortora. He's now actually working at Mercedes, um, initially in the simulation development department. So I was writing simulation tools and modeling things for the simulator. I was still convinced that I wanted to work in strategy and despite my boss being like, do you want to give simulation a little bit longer? And I was like, mm -hmm, no, I would still really like to work in strategy. So um, very grateful that he kind of facilitated my wishes to be able to move. And then when there was a position available internally, I moved into that. On the subject of DRS, was there much resistance? Were you aware of any resistance when it came to the whole concept of DRS really? I think people like to complain about everything, but I think you can't take that from us as Brits because if you take our ability to complain about anything and everything, like who are we at the end of the day? Like we say we want wet races, yeah. then there's too much rain. Yeah. You know, we say yeah. we want overtaking, then there's too much overtaking. Wrong kind of leaves on the Wrong line. Wrong leaves. Yeah. Like I yeah. think, you know, it's it's just, it's in the fabric hey, of well, our with, being. With your DRS experience, quick question on Zanvoort. Do you think next year we could open the DRS before the final turn? Open it. <laughs> I'd love to. Yeah. Do you think it would work? Yeah, I think so. I think I think the the men wanted to make sure completely understandably for safety reasons. Um, there was there was discussion right up until the kind of the start of the race. But you can also understand that they want to like safety has to come first. Um, but it would be it would be really good to to have it open through. 
Let's go to another mega strategy. Brazil 2016. Anyone who was at the track will remember the rain and the red flags. But it was a huge race for Sauber. <laughs> That's points, guys! Yes! <laughs> yes! Yes! <laughs> Mega drive, Philippa. <laughs> Good job. Unbelievable. Yes. Thanks a lot. Yes. Good job. Oh man, it feels like a victory. Never stop believing, guys. Oh. Never, never, never. Yes. Yeah, I'd only just joined the team. It was a bit of a kind of like could have been an ending, you know. I mean, I think the way that Formula One was previously structured, so only the top ten teams get any money from winning. Well, winning the getting in the top ten, um, and there was at this point there was eleven teams, and it's actually a huge significance in terms of the amount of money that teams have to get to get to take through so it's a real significant point in the championship if you were 10th or if you were 11th um, in terms of the financials for the next year and at that point we were 11th and Mana had done a wonderful job um, and they were in 10th and it was pretty awful to be racing against them for 10th in the championship because they were kind of the only ones that knew how stressful it was so it was it was there was a lot of sportsmanship between the two teams uh, there was some incredible people uh, working at Manor at, at that time, including my old boss, Pat Fry, who was on the pit wall. So it was very strange racing against him, but I knew the way he thought. <laughs> Equally, he knew the way I thought. Um, they had a brilliant strategist and they had a really good, really, really good pit wall. And, and the car was quite slow, but it was very difficult to get a, a one-upmanship on, on this team. And we were trying everything in terms of exotic strategies. We tried some exotic strategies. Pitted on lap one in Mexico. That was a great day. That's interesting because from the outside looking in, I think there is the perception that Sauber is quite conservative. But that's clearly not the case when you get under the skin. Emily Bozerup's theorem is necessity is the mother of invention. There's no need to go and gamble your life savings away if you're going on holiday to Las Vegas and you just want to have a nice evening. Your actions and your choices have to be proportionate to how much do you want to risk and, and, and what's it worth. And when, it, when you have to do a great result, you have to risk more. And when you're running out of time and you're running out of races and if we do not get this 10th place and if we do not give it hell and we do not try absolutely everything within our power, and Manisha was very clear that she was like, we will keep trying. And the both drivers were driving the, some of the best driving they've ever done. You know, the, the driving we now see with Marcus Ericsson in IndyCar, we saw, or everybody saw in Hinville in that year, in, in 2016, you know, he would do anything. We put him in some really awkward positions with having to like keep a set of tyres alive for like, you know, 69 laps, which at that point people didn't do that. This wasn't 2017, this was 2016. And we had like Light Hill's eighth equation trying to work out what was going on with these tyres in Brazil and sorry, Mexico with the way that the temperatures were going to work. And so, you know, we were really trying absolutely everything, as were Mana, to get into the points. And then the Brazil day, it was very clear. I don't know why, but we just woke up and we just knew that that was going to be the day that it was going to come down to because it was raining and because of the way that the the whole situation was set up. It just felt like it was going to be that day. 
I had the same feeling in Spa where I was like, this is going to be the day that Williams score a lot of points. So I think we're, we're good with that feeling. The feeling still works. <laughs> and it's rain. <laughs> yeah. And it's rain. It's yeah. So I also had it in Budapest, annoyingly. Um, so um, Felipe Naza, who was Brazilian, who drove spectacularly that day, just came in the morning and he was like, we're going to get points today. He just was so solely focused on this and it, and it kind of manifested this positive energy. And I remember we were kind of going to the pit wall and at this point it was kind of like almost like a like um, gallows humour between like ourselves and like Mano. It's, we were like, five stops, you do five stops, I'll do five stops, you know, between myself and like Dave Ryan. So like everybody was there and like, you know, the drivers, people like Pascal who then came and drove with us and no Con at the time who was also like, you know, young and demonstrating some like spectacular rain driving I mean I remember before the race being like so for some reason Ocon had managed to get to Formula One without ever doing like a competitive FIA wet race and so he just kind of always done all of his points finishes in dry racing so I was like guys I found this fact out about Ocon like he's gonna be terrible because he's not done any wet race he was amazing so I should never believe in statistics. So that that bit of positivity didn't work. But I love that detail, by the way, <laughs> that you went into. Oh, about yeah, know your enemy. Res- but, yes. Or don't, as it yeah, turns out. Yeah. Not always correct. Um, and yeah, and I think like that race, you know, Grosjean went off on the laps to grid. The rain was increasing. We had to make a call between the inter and the ex-wet. There was a point at which genuinely... It was on the limit. We didn't want to put all of our eggs in one basket because we didn't want to pay God. And we thought if we are tenth of the teams were literally going half and half. It was split down the line. And we were like, okay, so if we're tenth in both, then at least we'll get a point with one of the cars <laughs> if it turns out wrong. So I mean I think in terms of the of the strategy for that one, that was about survival and was a lot more based on 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 trying to cover off of our bases but there were points in the race where we were losing so when we entered the pit lane for the first red flag we were okay and then they gave Ricciardo a penalty and if he'd if the race was not restarted I don't think I'd have ever forgiven him for this and the penalty would have meant that if the race did not restart and half points were awarded Mana would have beaten us by half a point and I was there like oh god <laughs> and then we were like you know saying oh the weather looks great it's so lovely weather we should really start the race again and then you've got Mana being like oh it's, it's terrible weather Charlie this is absolutely abominable we can't get this race for start so yeah so it was um it was not. Uh, it was a marathon, not a not a victorious. <laughs> how how did the emotions compare after that one to Malaysia fifteen? So first win versus that tenth place. Very mixed, I think, because you didn't feel like you'd you'd hurt anybody by doing well in Malaysia because you know Mercedes just went on to win the next race and the next one. Um, oh, I see. So your euphoria in Brazil, obviously, the guys. At yeah, home, yeah, you know, I think yeah. I think we really felt for the people because you know you'd like a one of my friends who now works at uh, Aston Martin was there after the race and was like had a wheel gun and was like just spinning it in the pit lane and I remember that feeling of like oh god we've just taken it from them and I think that's something that I hope never happens again in the future of Formula One and we create a sustainable sport that all the teams that are in the sport are all able to kind of keep continuing no matter what the kind of results are and and that we can all support each other through kind of, you know, financial woes, let's say, especially given the kind of the situation. And I'm I'm very happy that there's never been a team that's left the sport since then. And maybe that wasn't all of it. Maybe it wasn't all of that, but it, it didn't feel great. There is one thing you said in your description of that race about 
going in, you just knew you were going to have a good race that day. NASA came in and said, yeah, we're going to score points today. How much do you rely on gut instinct? I don't know if it's necessarily gut instinct or just sports psychology. I'm really interested in sports psychology. I've read a lot of books about it. And, and I think just like with a driver, you don't, you're going to drive an awful race if you if you sit on the front of the grid and you're like, I'm going to lose this pole. My car's really bad. I'm not very good under braking. The guy next to me is so much better than me. Like drivers don't do it like this. You know, if you're like about to like, you know, play the tennis final, you don't think you're going to like drop all of your sets and lose. And I think it's the same thing for what we do. You have to be positive and you have to be believing in yourself and you have to be focused on your decision making rather than being worried about it because otherwise you'll spend so much time panicking you would actually do the job so I think there's a lot in not only the psychology of the way that you communicate to the people around you but also the way that you communicate to yourself in order to keep calm under pressure and to not waste time and emotional capacity worrying and and try and be as positive as you can be before the race, during the race. And then the second after that, you then tug at every little string of failure and try to understand what you could have done better. But it's not helpful during the race at all to focus on errors and to focus on fear. You have to focus on on doing the next correct thing, even if you've just made a screw up. <laughs> now there's one more on my list, and that is Australia 2016. You're at Haas. It's the team's first race. No one knew how you guys were going to get on. You had a good driver in Romain Grosjean. Now all eyes on Romain Grosjean and Haas F1, who've emulated Toyota, the last team, to score points on their Formula One debut. Brand new team, brand new season. Point scoring finish for Haas F1. Congratulations to them. Checkered flag, Roman. Checkered flag. Absolutely amazing, dude. Guys, listen to me. This is a win for us. This is a win. Unbelievable for everyone. Unbelievable. I don't even know where we finished. Unbelievable. You finished sixth. Set that one up for us. So I slept on the floor the night before. <laughs> Wait, in the garage? Or? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. It Actually, was... Can we wind up further back, Ruth? What, what made you leave Ferrari to go to Haas? Were you quite excited by that the whole idea of a startup team I, I wanted to be trackside and I wanted to grow and when Inaki Rueda joined he made it very clear that opportunity wouldn't be available at Ferrari and thankfully there was like a kind of a collaboration between Ferrari and Haas and, and James Allison mentioned my name to Gunter and it was a, a really great opportunity for me to be able to actually get trackside and be ahead of strategy rather than be a, you know, be a kind of back in the factory. Although I was the only person in strategy, so I just had to manage myself, but I am difficult to manage. Um, <laughs> so we're then, now, we're now, you're asleep on the floor. <laughs> it's only because we had so much to do. So like starting a new team, there's just, you don't realise how much is carryover until you actually start a new team and you're like, oh wow, there's absolutely everything, like absolutely every line of code every single thing we were there was people joining all the time so there was like certain jobs that we had to do like I had to do the wheel tracking as well which I did an appalling job of in terms of all the mileage and the TPMS sensors as well there was just so much work to do in terms of getting everything set up and then actually trying to understand the strategy and also like it was my first ever race trackside so I had a real like I don't think the deep end I think ocean is the word for it so it was kind of a small new team 
all on my own doing strategy, new software, trying to get everything set up and going. And, and it just took some time to do. And then in my infinite wisdom, I decided that it would be an inefficient use of time, given it was about 6 a.m. when I finished, I had to be back at about 8 a.m. I just thought I'd just sleep on the floor because it would save the commuting time. And it was a good call. And the uh, I'd like kind of slept on all the overalls, which were brand new. So it wasn't actually, it wasn't actually dirty because yeah. everything was clean. <laughs> um, that race was, uh, it really did feel like a win. And people say that, but like when Roman said that, it really was. And and there were so many elements of, of that race itself that was was such a personal challenge in terms of getting everything working and trying to really do the job for the first time, but like do so much more than than really you'd normally have to to cover. And then seeing the the, the crash and making the call that it would be to stay out, or at least initially, because it was going to be a red flag. I remember my boss asked me what to do, and, I, and he was saying, "Should we come in?" And I was going. Oh, I think it's gonna and then yeah and then we went and we stayed out and then we we're able to change tires under the red flag which is great because of the lack of pit stop practice that we had to do so all the guys were saying to me like can we have the smallest number of pit stops possible like as a joke they were like don't do a two stop do a one stop one stop and then like after the race I remember them like chanting something and I was like what are they saying and they were going no stop no stop and <laughs> which is which is great because then we did a load of pit stop practice before Bahrain uh, we actually did one more stop than everybody else and did an even better race and came P5 so yeah we did it we just kind of moved the stops around to kind of maximize the preparation for the car I always say how good was Grosjean? I think he was lovely, a really good guy to work with. It's Did really he get strategy in the way that Vettel does, for example? Yeah, I mean, I've been very lucky to be fair that I've never had a driver that doesn't get strategy. I've I've always worked with with great drivers. Maybe they're all great, and I've just like, <laughs> worked with them. But no, well, I mean, it's Formula One, I suppose. Yeah, it's never been a problem. It's mm. uh, it's always been been easy to kind of to communicate it. And I think also he he really understood. When we were talking about the the start tire choice, you know, we'd, we'd qualified towards the back with the wonderful elimination qualifying. Um, so, it, hey, was that a strategist? No, it lasted for two races, didn't it? Yeah, I've never felt more alive though. <laughs> like, I mean, I know it was probably the most boring thing in the world to watch, but it was it was. God, I can't even remember really, the rules. It was for really that. exciting. There was like an elimination every That's sixty right. seconds. Kind of just watching like a car crash in slow motion. Can I take you? to sort of the present day now. Fred Vasseur is your boss at Alfa Romeo. How different a team does Fred run compared to Monisha? Monisha Kaltenborn? In my world, it's quite similar. They just kind of let me do my strategy. <laughs> um, I think as in terms of in my job, you really need a, a good team principal that will support you, especially as we all know, it should be 2021 and being a woman shouldn't make a difference. But you know, we all know the reality of it is that sometimes it does. And um, I can say with both of them, there's never been any kind of problem. So I think from my perspective, in my world, it's very similar. They've obviously got very different styles, both in terms of fashion and in terms of, <laughs> in terms of leadership. Um, but equally happy to roll the dice if that's what's needed on the day. Yeah, and I think they're both great individuals and I've been lucky to, to work for both of them. On the topic of diversity there aren't many females in top engineering positions in formula one why do you think that is i think it all starts at the grassroots 
and the applications to A-levels in the UK, to universities, um, percentage-wise, we're running around 10 to 1 maximum for men, which means that statistically speaking, it's going to be 10 times harder to find a woman of the quality that you want compared to a man, assuming that everybody is the same as a base level, which there's no statistical evidence to suggest that men are better than women. And then that means your pool of candidates gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and it will take time to change that. If you look at medicine, I think it's a great example that if you look at my parents' generation, when my mum joined medicine, they were running about the same percentages. So it was about 10, 10 men to every one women. What is it now? 50-50, actually, it's slightly more women. And as a result of that, you're seeing that percolating through and you're seeing senior management positions being filled with women, not because there's any bias, but because you've already made a pre-selection bias because you've got fewer kids doing it, fewer people taking the university course, fewer people applying for the job, which means fewer people get in, which means by the time you fast forward 20 to 30 years, there's fewer people available. And that's why it's absolutely critical that we start right now, we start grassroots, we make sure that STEM subjects are available and they are advertised and we do things like the, the Hamilton Foundation to make sure that it's not just one subsect of schools that are offering a higher percentage chance to be able to go and do STEM subjects because they're the harder ones, which means that some schools often don't offer them or push students away from them in order to get slightly better grades, for example. Um, making sure that if you're female, black, you're anything, you have the exact same opportunities, you're being given the same options in terms of A-levels and choices, and it will change because there's nothing different between medicine than engineering or medicine than law. It's just smart, passionate people. And if we make a change now, we'll see a difference in the percentage rates of people coming into Formula One, whether that's driving or engineering or media or manufacturing or being a mechanic in 10 to 15 years and we wait another 20 years and the people at the top will be 50-50. But can we as a sport do more? We should do more steps like we're doing already, which is things like the Hamilton Foundation, things like the the kind of We Race as One initiative and making the sport more visible and being a real flair into society to say, hey, if you go and do maths, you can get a cool job that is bankable, that you'll be able to pay for your mortgage. And this industry exists and we want you here. And that's the thing that you, you need to inspire people around the world. You know, Ferrari, as a sports car manufacturer, make red plastic toys available at a very cheap price to every kid in the world. So that every kid grows up and the ones that end up being millionaires or multimillionaires are more likely to buy a Ferrari because that was the plastic car they played with as a kid. It's exactly the same with something like a STEM career or being a driver. We, we have to make it so that it is available and we say we want you in this industry. This isn't just for one set, set of people. If you think that that's wrong, come here. It's a great sport and it's a great job. And getting people at the grassroots totally understand that. You're clearly a very determined woman. Did you notice any resistance on the way up when you were in Formula One? Definitely. I think it's... 
if you if you haven't you probably just haven't been around long enough to experience it i think probably going into like the the detail of it is not helpful or constructive moving forward but it does exist in formula one still yeah of course i think and i think that's why you know if it didn't exist we wouldn't have the need to do the things that we do right now in terms of of really trying to make a platform we we've seen you know we've seen even very recently horrific racial tweets you know a couple of months ago i think it would be you know naive to to not say that these things still exist that there are biases and that there are uh, people judged and held to a different standard you know we saw a couple of years ago when susie ran in an fp1 people judging her to a different standard than any other junior driver running in an FP1, people using different kinds of language when they talk about female team principals versus male team principals, questions about babies rather than questions about Formula One cars. You know, nobody's ever asked Toto how he handles his work-life balance after a newborn child, but that's a perfectly acceptable question to ask Susie when she was announced as the Venturi team principal. And, and, And those kind of microaggressions are indicative of the fact that the world is not fully changed yet and we need it to change and we need it to be a platform so that it isn't just one small subsect of society that gets a go at it because whilst there's going to be brilliant people there there's brilliant people everywhere and the sport will be better and the cars will be faster and the racing will be so much more exciting I mean imagine if imagine if we hadn't had Lewis in the world championship you know the first black driver imagine if he wasn't here how boring would some of the races been over the last 15 years? You know, how wonderful is it that we've got here and how many others are we missing out on potentially? How many potential females are we missing out on? And the, the more effort that we can put in to making it not a utopia, but just equal opportunities for people. I think we're gem- there's, there's no evidence to suggest we're not going to be a better place for it. And Ruth, tell me a little bit about Girls on Track and the success you're having with that. Girls on Track, which was born out of the Dare to Be Different initiative that was set up by Susie Wolf, is a is a way in which women that are working in motorsports, so all all forms of motorsport, uh, including F1, can um, provide practical advice in terms of what you should be doing in terms of school subjects, what maybe in terms of internships, networking as well. So there's lots of girls that are part of this initiative that have gone on to work in, in both Formula One teams and get internships in various forms of motorsport. And it, and it really is brilliant. And, and in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, a girl, Holly, who I met in Silverstone, she's just started at Williams. That's a woman in Formula One because of this program. And there's so many other examples like that. You know, there's so many examples of people that are networking opportunities that have come across because of this. So I met Tatiana Calderon through Dare to be Different. When Manisha was looking for a development driver, I suggested her name because she fitted the profile. And that whole thing kicked off because of networking. Her name wasn't even in the room until I mentioned it. And then she was a good fit. And the day that she drove a Formula One car, came about because of the day that Susie Wolf decided to start Dare to be Different, which created this environment of people and created this network and created the way that we all know things work in Formula One, which is about, you know, and works in industry and works in business, that if you can know somebody, that you can talk to somebody, you can have your CV in the right place, you can have the correct, you know, qualifications, you know, the right person to contact. That's how things happen. Um, and, and really creating a very, very specific and targeted thing for 
very specific and targeted problem, which is if you are a 16 year old girl and you don't know what you should really do, if you were me 15 years ago, actually, rather than having to Google Paddy Low on the internet <laughs> or Joyce, Bing, I don't know what it was. Ruth, it is phenomenal <laughs> to think what you had to do back then. You know, you can just go and, and, and get the answer and then maybe give a slightly less pathetic answer in an interview <laughs> 15 years later. <laughs> and Ruth, do you go into schools and talk to, to girls about it? Yeah, I mean, less so now because of the, the kind of COVID uh, restrictions. But yeah, there's been lots of events. At the um, the NEC, we've got a, a stand that is there every year where we've got to meet people. I've met some fantastic people through that. There's online um, uh, kind of communications in terms of just ping ponging of emails. There's girls we've got to come to um, Grand Prix events, various different things set up for 2022. Um, so if you do go onto the website on the Girls on Track, you can see everything that's planned for the coming year. Um, and it and it really is just keeps growing and growing every year. Obviously now it's incorporated within the FIA and it. it it really is. If you are a girl and you are interested in, in Formula One and you think this place isn't for me, it is. Go on the website and you'll find exactly all the information you need to know. Ruth, that's a very inspiring chat you've just given. So hopefully lots of girls listening to this will go onto the website. But can I just bring it back on track? If there's one thing that you could change in Formula One in order to make the races more strategically interesting... What would that be? I mean, are we talking about a return to refueling or shorter pit lanes? Or is there anything, I mean, <laughs> two bad ideas probably, but is there anything that, that could make it more strategically interesting? Or are you going to tell me it's fascinating anyway? Well, it is fascinating anyway. I think most people have got... Uh their own wonderful ideas of ways in which we can increase the number of pit stops without um, putting anything under in terms of safety concerns. I think that's that's generally what we want to do in terms of having more pit stop opportunities. You know, generally when stop, something's a, a two slash one stop or a three slash two stop, it's, it's more exciting. So that goes hand in hand with the, with obviously the 2022 tyres. So we need to see what happens with those. Refueling is actually very boring for strategy because then all of the action happens in the pits. And now with all of our wonderful onboard cameras, we don't really want that anymore. Right, you want back in your box, Tom? Yeah, sorry, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, there's a very strong correlation with the number of overtakes and the lack of refueling. But uh, also, I don't really want to have to wear a fireproof suit. So. <laughs> I can understand that. Well, Ruth, it's been wonderful to chat. Final question from me is. Once a strategist, always a strategist, or is there another engineering type job within Formula One that you're interested in? I don't know. Do you want to ask Ross Braun that question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think I think there's a there's the whole world of strategy, isn't it? So I think there's a, there's a lot of opportunity in Formula One. But for for right now, I'm still still very interested in in pit stops and undercuts. Well, Ruth, thank you very much for your time. It's been great to chat. Thank you. The whole world is strategy. Indeed it is, Ruth. Now, I took so much away from this chat because Ruth's journey to the top and what she had to do to get there was so inspiring. And her detailed descriptions of races like Malaysia 2015 were unbelievable. I felt like I was on the pit wall with her. And there's no doubting Ruth's desire to get more women involved in Formula One. And if anyone wants to find out more about Girls on Track, please give them a follow on Twitter or Instagram at GirlsOnTrackUK. Ruth, many thanks for your time. It was great to catch up and I look forward to seeing you again in Turkey next week. 
As ever, please send in any stories or thoughts that you have on Ruth. And remember, I'll read out the best ones next week. Send them to me at Tom Clarkson F1 or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Nikita Mazepin after last week's show. Let's get started with this from Axel. Nikita is obviously comfortable in his skin. I'm impressed with his confidence and have changed my opinion of the man. Well, thanks, Axel, and appreciate you getting in touch. Now, let's go next to Cristobal Green. Great podcast. I was impressed with Nikita and his focus and clarity. He seems a really tough cookie. I hope he has a strong end to the season. Cristobal, it would be great to see Nikita and Haas end the year strongly, but I think it's going to be hard for them given the limited development that they've done on the car this year. And how about this from MVAMV? Now that's a great Twitter handle, who said this. It's incredible how a good interview can change perceptions about an individual. Your interview with Nikita certainly changed my perception towards him and I'm convinced that he's far better than what I thought of him. Well, thank you, MVAMV. Great to hear from you and thank you for getting in touch. And let's end with this from Tim. I was in two minds about listening to this podcast, he says, but I'm glad I did. It's clear Nikita comes from a very different background to most people. And I was unconvinced with his answers to the social media post last December. And have I changed my opinion of him? No, but it's still good to learn more. Well, that's our goal with every Beyond the Grid, Tim. And thank you to you for getting in touch. Well, that's it for another week. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Ruth Buscombe. And don't forget to send in your thoughts and stories on her. I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. So see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out.